Welcome to History Pop, where we examine the intersection of pop culture and history, fictional, fictionalized, or otherwise. I'm your host, Courtney, and I'm so pleased to bring us all back in for the second episode of our Victoria series. Really, Cat? He's decided that as soon as I start recording, it's time to go eat. So if you hear crunching noises in the back, that's him deciding to be a little jerk. <laughs> anyway, uh, so in the last episode, we talked a bit about Victoria's life before she ascended the throne of England, and today we're going to be looking at some of the more climactic moments in the show that were inspired by real-life events. Also ones that were entirely made up. So stay tuned for the stuff that made me go, hmm, I think I need to look that up on Wikipedia. And also stuff that made me go, huh, I think I need to look that up on Wikipedia. I don't just want to give an overview of some of the most obvious departures from the historical record, but some of the more subtle changes that were made for dramatic effect, or to make a character more or less sympathetic to the audience. There are no spoilers in history, but there will be in this podcast. I'm taking most of my talking points for this episode from the first season of Victoria, with most of this cast focusing on the first episode, but there will also be some bits and bobs from seasons two and three as we progress. So with that, onward to fictional Victorian Britain. opening uh not monologue <laughs> i was gonna say the dramatic opening theme because it is a gorgeous theme uh it's actually written was it michael phipps i want to look this up this is why i have my phone right here spotify i have everything on spotify this is not an ad for spotify but spotify if you're listening i would totally love to have a sponsorship deal that'd be amazing I was close. Martin Phipps. Yes, yeah, so written by Martin Phipps and then performed by the Medieval Babes. B-A-E. One letter character. B-E-S. Babes. Uh, but no, it's beautiful and it's fantastic. But anyway. Uh, so to begin with, I want to start with letting you in on a little bit of a confession of mine. Until I actually started kind of looking at more Victorian history, which honestly didn't really happen until I started watching Victoria, which is another reason why I'm really interested and happy to be able to put together this podcast, because looking at all of these different historical shows in popular culture has made me want to research more and to find out more about what happened in the historical record. How do historians interpret that historical record, and how does that influence, or not at all, what we see in pop culture and so I honestly wasn't really all that interested in the Victorian era or the 19th century really at all because I had had much of at least on the other side of the Atlantic uh, so much of it just shoved down my throat during my k-12 education we didn't really spend any time on anything that wasn't American history and so it 
I just wasn't interested in that time period. I wasn't interested in anything that really had much to do with American history because I'd had so much of it and I didn't really get to express my own curiosities and to explore the historical questions that I wanted to explore. Um, I was actually talking uh, with a younger person the other day and she was telling me about how in middle school that she had one little theme unit about women in American history. And I was just like, really? That, that, that's it? I mean, that's better than what I had when I was in middle school, which to be fair was like 20 years before. And there's progress, but she was telling me about how her teachers really don't focus on any socially, social or cultural histories. It's mostly just, hey, America's great because we did this civil war and here's how the battles went out. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with looking at military history or understanding the tactics used in different military engagements because those things are climactic and those things have effects on the people who lived then as well as long-ranging effects of the people who are living since. And so I do wholeheartedly believe that military history is really important to understand, but I think that we need to be able to put it in conversation with the lives of the people at the home front, the lives of the soldiers themselves, or the other people who are in the support positions. How do we see how these sorts of things affect the rest of the world? And I think that those questions really aren't ever brought up or addressed, especially in K-12 education. And so I didn't really get the chance to ask my own sort of historical questions. The closest that it ever came was in high school, in my English class, we were supposed to pick a book and write a book report on it, as you do. And so me being the complete and utter nerd that I was slash am, decided to go for one of the thickest books that I could find. Because, you know, if you read thick books... That means you're smart. Not really. God, the Nietzsche. Nietzsche has tiny, thin books, and they're so hard. Anyway, so I, I read through the thickest book that I could find in the library, which was not Grapes of Wrath, although I still don't know if I like Grapes of Wrath. That was a traumatic experience. But I read a biography on Marie Antoinette, and that got me interested in looking at the stories of women in the past, or rather it engaged my innate curiosity in that. And so I got to learn so much more about the French Revolution than was ever briefly touched on in school. I got to, oh no, someone's having a bad day. I don't know if you can hear the sirens out there. Um, yeah, that's, that comes from living next to a fire station, which honestly is not a bad thing. But so looking at these historical influences in pop culture let, led me to be able to ask more questions. And that's what watching the Victoria show did for me because there were so many things that I was like, that really can't have happened this way. And then, oh my goodness, yes it did. Which we will talk about in future casts with Victoria. So I want to talk a little bit about a, a misconception that I had before I actually had the chance to really kind of sit down and even Google it or Wikipedia was the fact that it feels like Victoria reigned for basically the whole of the 19th century. It seems like she and her time frame is a lot like 
Queen Elizabeth II today in that she's just this fixture that it feels like she's always going to be there that you know she'll never die she's a vampire uh and so it just felt like it made sense that she reigned through the whole of the 19th century which actually isn't true she was on the throne for just over 60 years and her reign didn't actually begin until 1837 so nearly 40 years into the century and now we talked a bit in the first victoria episode about who all was on the throne before her her grandfather, George III, reigned until about 1820, technically. The country had been under the regency of his son, George IV, from 1811, but he technically only had the throne after his father's death in 1820. So George IV then was king until 1830, when he died. And then we have the scramble for the secession that happened during his reign, and then his younger brother, William, ascended the throne next, becoming William IV in 1830. He reigned until Victoria, well, his death, and then his, uh, when after Victoria turned 18, and then he did promptly die. Uh, then she was queen from 1837 until her death in 1901. Now, I also just realized that for those of you who might be interested, I would love to talk about regnal names and numbers. Uh, especially as we get further on in history towards the more modern day, we have a crap ton of names that are given to all these royal babies. They have lots of names. And so it's interesting to see which names they pick as their regnal names. And then also, how do these numbers come about? Like, okay, so if we have William IV as Victoria's uncle, well then, who were Williams one, two, and three? Uh, the most fun, or at least tragic, depending on how you look at the story, is probably the story of the Edwards. Uh, which brings us then back, actually, at least for the crux point, to the late 1400s. And uh, that's another story, though. So if you would like to hear more, throw me a comment or a tweet, and we can get on it. <laughs> that's my jam, yo. Oh, God, did I actually say that? Did I just say that? Yes, I did. It's on the record. Anyway, so Victoria, as much as I had thought she had until I started doing research, did not reign for the entirety of the 19th century, but for most of it. The show starts off with text, which if you do watch TV sins or cinema sins, that would totally be a sin, ding. Uh, but at least it's not narration. So the very first thing that we see in the show is the messenger from Windsor Castle bearing the official news of King William's death. How do we know this aside from being told? Well. He is wearing a bright red uniform that's intricately detailed. So it's obviously very well made, and at this point in time, especially very, very expensive. These uniforms are super expensive. Um, oh gosh, now I want to I want to look up. Uh, I did a course talking about royal fashion online, and one of the things that was really cool was it actually showed us one of the yeoman warders at the Tower of London, and he talked about the different parts of his uniform, how much they cost etc etc um but so this servant then comes to the door bearing the message that the king is dead long live the queen now he is as brody points out wearing a black armband this signals that he is in mourning this is an actual like prescribed period of time where you 
wear black. You don't go out in public. Uh, you don't do all of these particular things to perform your grief. Now, that's not to say that you don't actually feel grief for or sadness or any other uh, authentic emotions at the deaths of these other people. But part of the royal culture and as it has been I actually would be interested in finding out more about the mourning uh, rituals and ceremonies. But anyway, for a very, 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 very long time is the rituals and the ceremonies surrounding mourning. Now, normally at the death of a sovereign, the whole of the royal court, nay, technically kingdom, uh, goes into mourning, which is a period of time when everyone wears black. And depending on your station, you... I get to go to the funeral and have a part in the funeral or not. Um, you may also be out of a job if you're one of the servants of said person who just passed away, as the staff were employed by the head of the household and didn't just stay in one place. So you weren't just, I'm a servant at Buckingham Palace. No, you served at the Queen's pleasure. So you go where the Queen goes, depending on what your position is, which is why we actually see... Uh, the servants travel with Victoria. When we see Miss Garrett come with her to the Isle of Wight, so that way she can have her dresser there, etc., etc., the servants and the whole household move with the sovereign. So the court moved around to wherever the monarch was, so it's not just the household servants that go along with you, it's all of the courtiers trying to bend the ear of the monarch. And that could also make it super expensive as well. Because not only are you moving, you know, goods, furniture, clothes, you're moving people. And in the Tudor period, I would actually need to look it up for the Victorian era. But in the Tudor period, basically, you, if the sovereign, let's say Queen Elizabeth, because she went on a lot of progresses, comes to your house over the summer, you get to host her. It is a big honor to get to host the queen but is also expensive because she ain't gonna pay you to stay in your house you get to pay for the entertainments you get to pay for the upkeep you get to pay for the food because it is an honor to get to serve your queen and this actually people would borrow money lots and lots of money to be able to adequately or try to overwhelm the monarch with how much they were loyal to her or devoted to her and also to impress her kind of with her with your wealth so this became a very expensive proposition and so i do love getting to actually see this as an uh, accurate bit of history uh in the show so I love how at the beginning as well that when we see the household servants running about bringing news of William's death to the various members of the other staff and then to Victoria herself, that this is exactly how news like this travels. It is very quickly through word of mouth. You have people who are kind of in your pocket in the household who are under your employ, maybe not technical, but it's someone who owes you a favor or whatever so that you get to be kept in on the circle of gossip. And I also love how we see Victoria assert herself and her independence right away. This is true to the historical record and in her diaries. Uh, so at the very beginning, in her nightdress, she meets the Archbishop of Canterbury, who is the highest of the high churchmen in the land. Uh, 
and Lord Coiningham, who officially brings her the news of William's death. As she wrote in her diary after learning the news, quote, Since it has pleased Providence to place me in this station, I shall do my utmost to fulfil my duty towards my country. I am very young, and perhaps in many, though not all things, inexperienced, but I am sure that very few have more real goodwill and more real desire to do what is fit and right than I have. So after Victoria learns of her destiny, which she already knew for a while, and runs off with Dash to go and get changed and get things taken care of, the scene cuts to Lord Melbourne, or Lord M, as Victoria will actually not eventually, very fairly quickly come to call him, being woken with the news of the king's death. We see the same situation where we have the uh, official uniform of the messenger and the black armband, and he doesn't even need to ask. He's just like, the king? Yeah. And he asks for coffee to help wake him up. So Lord Melbourne, or the second Viscount Melbourne, William Lamb, was born in 1779 and was Victoria's first prime minister. So we actually do get to see him quite a bit here in the first season. Now his mother, Elizabeth Lamb, was a star of high society for the Whigs. And she was full of charm and she had a very powerful character. Uh, this was in direct contrast to who... Mm, William's father possibly at least the man who is credited with being his father who in whose household he was raised apparently no one knew which of her lovers was William's father uh, which is fine go her um but uh so William though was a member of the Whig party from basically his birth and according to his entry in the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, he was basically a sweet mama's boy who loved literature and Shakespeare. Uh, he was a student of the classics, uh, history and literature, and which Victoria eventually came to appreciate in him as in some ways her education was lacking. Eventually, though, Lamb married Caroline Ponsby, who, which did not go well for him. They never really got on well, and they had... Uh, issues that they shared, shared heartaches. Uh, they had a stillborn daughter, and they had a son who had epileptic seizures. And so their marriage had a lot of tensions. Um, and she began to have very public affairs. They formally separated in 1825, and he technically became a lord, the, the Viscount, on the death of his father in 1828, which coincidentally was the same year that Caroline died. After all of that, he would come and sit in the House of Lords, and he became the Home Secretary in 1830. In 1831, he became enamored of Caroline Norton, a woman who led a campaign to reform divorce laws during her own horrible marriage. Uh, Lamb, though, became Prime Minister in 1834, and he had a rougher go of it with William IV, but had an easy relationship with Victoria right off the bat, as we do see in the show. So Melbourne asks for a cup of coffee to wake him up from his sleepy stupor. Now, coffee was a super fashionable drink from its introduction in England in the 17th century. The first ever coffee house in England was built in the city of Oxford uh, in 1651 during the Interregnum. An interregnum literally means between kings and was the time after the execution of Charles I in 1649 and the ascension of his son Charles II in 1660. It's uh, also known as the Protectorate, which is when we have Oliver Cromwell as a Lord Protector of the realm and then his son Richard Cromwell for a very short time of that. Uh, and then 
he steps aside. So that way, Charles II comes to the throne. Now, coffee houses in the early modern period aren't exactly the same as going into a Starbucks today. Honestly, I think that they would feel a bit more like an indie coffee shop, where people sit and chat and gossip and news is spread and you can lounge about in large comfy chairs. By 1675, so... Not that much longer after we have the introduction of coffee houses, there were more than 3,000 of them built in England. And they didn't just serve coffee. There were also food options, hot chocolate, which wasn't exactly as we Americans would think of it today, and I can definitely talk about hot chocolate in another podcast if it comes up, and tea as well, which were also just beginning to take off as a fashionable drink uh, in England after the marriage of Charles II and Catherine of Braganza, which brought with it new trading opportunities in Portuguese ports, which uh, were definitely places that were growing tea, and the Portuguese and the Spanish and people on the continent had been having tea as a fashionable drink for a while longer, but it comes to England in the early 1660s. So coffee houses, though, were the places to go if you wanted to hear about what was going on locally and around the world. It's where people came to debate, to chat, to listen, all for the price of a cup of coffee. One penny. Now, according to MeasuringWorth.com, so we'll put a decent amount of stock in that. I'm kidding. I don't know. But that same penny, then, for one cup of coffee would be in real wealth about 60 pence or 50 cents today. However, with inflation, the labor value or how much you would have to work to be able to have that much money to buy that penny coffee would be about eight pounds or about six bucks today. So it's honestly actually about the same price as a fancy cup of coffee at Starbucks today. So we see after the scene shifts then from Lord M asking for his coffee, the events back at Kensington, where Victoria's regnal name is being decided and how she will meet her ministers. Victoria asserts that she did, and always will, meet her ministers alone, just as any sovereign is expected to do. She doesn't need a chaperone present, and Lord Conroy, who is projected as the antagonist in the first season, absolutely loses it and yells at her. Now, I honestly don't know if he would have actually done so. Uh, Victoria already didn't like him, uh, but he would have been screaming at his queen. He would have been well aware of that. Uh, so it is possible that Goodwin was reading between the lines in Victoria's diary, or she found some other source which talks about this, but I don't know if he would have been so emotionally overcome or stupid enough to do that. Victoria, at this point, was the one with the power, and if she made it known to her ministers that she didn't need a chaperone, well, she was of age, and there weren't any deficiencies in her intellect or personality that way would have been able to use to reign in her power, to have a regency. So it may have just been artistic license. And the point of that, then, I would guess, would be to make viewers hate him right off the bat. Uh, Victoria, in her diaries, makes a big point in the coming entries that she will always... And she, I, I love it because Victoria is not afraid to write in all caps. <laughs> so she will always meet with her ministers alone. She does this several times. So that could indicate that there was a struggle that she actually had to assert her place in being able to say, no, I will do this and I will do this alone. Or it could just be that, you know, she was stubborn and she wanted to keep writing it and she wanted to assert it to herself. I don't know. But honestly, it's not like history needed help to make Conroy the bad guy in this. 
when Victoria was 16 and she was struck with a deathly illness. Uh, Conroy and her mother tried to get her to sign a contract that would guarantee him a position in her household when she would become queen. Now, she had helped to resist him. Uh, Lazen, her governess, had been devotedly nursing her back to health, and she helped to give her the mental wherewithal uh, and awareness to refuse to sign it. But seriously, Conroy? She is super sick, probably hallucinating, and you're trying to get her to sign off on something for years down the road while she's delirious? No. The show did not need to take any artistic license to make him unlikable. Now, Victoria's mother, Victoire, comes across as an overbearing and overprotective mother, but not necessarily a bad person. She just has the wrong advisor giving her the wrong advice. And at this point in time, though, Victoria is a teenager who has been cooped up her entire life, and now she gets to be the one to make all the decisions, and she's ready and raring to go to do so. But eventually, over time, Victoria comes to understand that her mother was just trying to do her best. She just wasn't necessarily the wisest of women, but she did have Victoria's best interests at heart. At least what she thought were Victoria's best interests, which of course also would help her. But regardless, one thing that the show does get spot on is how charming Lord M was. He was a man of intelligence who knew how to work with Victoria. Uh, he actually had gotten some advice from his sister, who we'll talk about in a future cast, uh, for how to actually deal with this young, feisty, intelligent queen. He ended up being like a father figure to her, who taught her the art of politics and guided her through her first few years as queen. He was the first person in her life who truly listened to her. He worked as sort of her personal secretary for the first few years as well, helping her learn how to manage the papers and the boxes and the processes of government. He knew how to gently guide her when she needed it. One thing, though, that the show does is to take a dramatic license with the romantic angle of their relationship. Now, Victoria does write about Lord M quite a bit in her diaries. Um, and it's clear that she expresses a lot of admiration that she expresses a lot of love and that she has nothing but the utmost respect for Lord M and his opinions and his ideas on how to take care of things. And the show, for some reason, tries to play it up like there is a legit romantic angle here. <laughs> Um, so she does write about him frequently, and he did have this huge impact on her life. Now, that's not to say that maybe she didn't develop some sort of crush, which is a distinct possibility, but at the same time, though, she does write about how he was a father figure to her, and after she did first lay eyes on Albert, she was smitten. So... I think it is interesting to look at how Victoria in her diaries chooses to represent their relationship. Um, but I think that the show kind of goes a bit far with that particular angle of their relationship. Now, another character who was important for Victoria's development was the Baroness Louisa Lazen. Her governess, as long as she could remember, she actually originally came into the household as governess for Fiodora, her older sister. 
Lazen, as she's known in the show, was always supportive and protective of Victoria and acted as a counterbalance to her mother and Conroy. She helped to foster Victoria's independence or stubbornness and supposedly was the one who tipped off her charge that one day she would be queen. During a lesson on history, Lazen slipped Victoria her family tree and after looking it over and thinking about it for a bit, Victoria realized that she was next in line for the throne. She paused and she looked at Lazen and she said, I will be good. She supposedly told her. Now, as the episode progresses, we see Victoria get to choose her own home, Buckingham Palace, or Buckingham House, and then she calls it a palace. And the effort of her servants uh, and what they put into to making it livable. Some of her servants are indeed based in historical record, like the Baroness Lazen and her cook, the genius Francatelli. Others are made up, but solidly based in what could have been their experiences based off of what we know about the royal household. These characters, like Brody and Penge, add a bit of spice of life and to the downstairs of the royal palace and are a direct connection to the life outside of it. We see Miss Scarrett, who... Although Nancy Scarrett is not based in historical reality, she did actually have a dresser named Miss Scarrett. Um, I think it was Marianne Scarrett. Um, but everything else is entirely made up about the character. But we see Nancy Scarrett taking the place of her single unwed mother sister as an assistant dresser to the queen and how she learns the ropes of being a royal servant. So while there's prestige, there's not a lot of pay. And I'm always particularly interested in these invented characters and how they're used to guide the audience through the world of the story. We get to see Scarrett learn about the customs and the political environment and learn how to make her way through living in the royal household. And because it's new to her, she can ask all of these questions, which then explains for all these other things to the audience what's going on. And so I think it's really interesting the use of these either completely fictional or fictionalized characters as a way to relate to the audience what is different about the world that these characters are stepping into from our own and what is similar. What is it that we would recognize and be able to empathize with and understand immediately and what's different? Scarrett's function in the narrative is much like that of Lady Oscar in The Rose of Versailles. They are tailor-made to fit into the world, but also to help provide explanations to the viewers about customs, dress, gender roles, society at large, etc. In the case of Scarrett in the first episode, we see her protect her fellow servant, Mrs. Jenkins, from Lazen's economies. One of the things that the show gets spot on is the role of a picker in Victorian England. The picker was someone who would literally pick through the garbage to find things that were salvageable to sell. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, and I always feel so smart when I can put out my dictionary and be like, I know what this word is. And the cool thing about the Oxford English Dictionary is it doesn't just tell you the definition of the word. It actually tells you how that definition has changed over time and when it has appeared in these particular contexts and these meanings. And it's really actually kind of cool. And you know I'm a dork and a nerd when I talk about how cool dictionaries are. <laughs> But anyway, so according to the Oxford English Dictionary, a picker in the Victorian era was used to describe thieves or pickpockets. 
as in Castle's Family Magazine, published in 1884, quote, The pickers, who are mostly Italians, gather 150,000 pounds of rags yearly in the streets and roads. Or from the Daily News in 1893, quote, 45,000 men and women subsisting on pickings from household rubbish. There are pickers and pickers, grades, aristocrats and plebeians in this profession as in any other, end quote. Now, it makes sense that with their low wages that the household servants would find some other perks to make ends meet. It is also in the Victorian era that we first see perk show up to mean, quote, an unofficial or fringe benefit enjoyed by an employee, end quote. As in 1869's Seven Curses London by Jay Greenwood, quote, the species of dishonesty is alluded to, is called by the cant name of perks, which is a convenient abbreviation of the word perquisites. It applies to such unconsidered trifles as wax candlelands, and may cover the larcenous abstraction by our manservant of forgotten coats and vests. End quote. So basically, it's like people are going to steal stuff that they are, think aren't, aren't going to be missed to be able to sell. Uh, and that's where perquisites comes from. And we actually do get to see this in the show. We have Victoria, who will never re-wear gloves. Um, and I don't know if that's actually based on the historical record or not. But uh, so then we do get to see the gloves being sold off at the pickers. But she will rewear her stockings, which is interesting. Uh, I suppose that's because those are much closer, I think, in terms of being a more intimate garment. And so once you find something that really works, you don't want to get rid of it. <laughs> Uh, so we sell the gloves. We also sell the once-burned candlesticks. Now, a character who I actually do feel kind of bad for is Lady Flora Hastings. Lady Flora did not like Lazen, or Lord M, and she was a part of the Kensington system, which kept Victoria sequestered. So she was already in Victoria's negative graces, bad graces? Not her good ones. Uh, to start the reign. Now, one day in 1839, which is just after uh, Victoria's coronation, a couple years into her reign, Lady Flora's stomach started to swell. Now, one of the things that is interesting actually to see is that Victoria was kept very innocent of human reproduction. She knew that a man and a woman together could do something, but she didn't quite know exactly what. Um, so... Lady Flora visited Victoria's doctor, who thought it may be pregnancy, but Flora refused to entertain that notion and the examination that the doctor recommended. Now, once Lazen found out about this, she intentionally spread rumors that Lady Flora was pregnant, and Lord M got in on it as well, because, well, he also wasn't a fan of her as well. Um... And so they spread rumors that Flora was indeed pregnant, which would have been a scandal as she was unmarried. Lady Flora, though, turned out not to be pregnant, uh, but did have terminal cancer of her liver, which killed her several months later. Now, the show does a good job of depicting this and how Victoria, believing Lazen, also believed that Flora was pregnant with Conroy's baby because, you know, they had spent some time in a coach alone together and like, that seems really uncomfortable. I'll leave you with that. Uh, but one thing that is incorrect here is that this all happened years after her coronation. Not before. I'm not sure how things would have been different for her had this happened before her coronation, but it was solidly after her reign had begun. And I'm assuming that they did this for the interest of time. 
to be able to, you know, get as much in during the season as they wanted to get in. And so these events are truncated and pushed together in a way that isn't historically accurate. So what do we get then in telling Victoria's early reign this way? The biggest changes that the series makes in the very beginning episode is the relationship between Lord M and Victoria and the timing of Lady Flora's illness. And I think that those are honestly done for dramatic impact so that we have the audience buildup of romantic uh, entanglement with Lord M to prime the audience for when Albert comes onto the scene and then we get to have the resolution of her uh, romantic aspirations, I guess, uh, with Albert. And so then we, as the audience, get to feel satisfied because, well, we know that she's with her Albert and she's going to be happy for a while. Spoilers. Um, and so these connections and these things that are changed are obviously then done for a particular reason. So for some reason, the show wants to play up that romantic angle between Em and Victoria to create drama where there was none historically. Now, it does make sense that Victoria would write, as I mentioned before, about her conversations with Lord M, because not only was he someone who took her seriously for the first time in her life, he was her prime minister. And so she would have a lot of interactions with him, and the first, as I said, to really take her seriously as a monarch. He was witty, intelligent, and kind, and in his prime, very handsome. There were rumors that the two would wed, of course, that was just in the gossip mags calling her Lady Melbourne, which there was no way that Victoria would think about actually marrying Lord Melbourne for many obvious reasons, that he, one, the age difference would have possibly caused a scandal, uh, two, the fact that he is a Viscount, he isn't a Duke or anything, you know, of uh, higher echelons of the nobility. And so he is her social inferior. And uh, so that could also then be an impediment to a marriage between them. Now, these rumors, though, were fueled partially by the fact not just that she was constantly seen in his company, which, as you do, she also had given him uh, apartments at Windsor. But once again, I would argue that that was because she valued him and his advice so much. She felt validated by him. She valued him. And she is quoted as uh, saying that she thought of him like a father, as her own had died when she was so young. Indeed, in her diary from April 2nd, 1838, quote, And he explained it to me like a kind father would do to his child. He has something so fatherly and so affectionate and kind in him that one must love him, end quote. He was a childless father who had a stillborn daughter and a young son who I told you a little bit about before who had just died in 1837. So they were a good match as a sovereign and a prime minister and as a fatherless daughter and a childless father. But we get drama from the whole, is she going to marry Lord M storylines that we never honestly really entertained in real life. And even in just the first episode, we get to see how independent Victoria wanted to be, but also then how she came to rely on the advice of her beloved counselors. And this does kind of set us up for future seasons where, you know, she relies heavily on Lord M and 
then afterward, her next great advisor and kind of mentor in the ways of politicking is her husband, Albert. After that, then she has several prime ministers who you know, pull her out of her mourning and bring her back into the public eye, like Disraeli, and who work to bring about the Victoria that we see at the very beginning of the show. Um, and so we do get to see then just how Victoria, as much as she is a very independently minded young woman, that she does rely on counsel. Um, and by showing us Victoria's early reign, before Albert enters the picture, we get to see Victoria figuring out for herself what being a queen means to her and how she intends to be a queen. And indeed, actually, Lazen never intended for Victoria to ever marry. She wanted her to be like a second Queen Elizabeth, as in Elizabeth Tudor, the virgin queen, virginal and unmarried. However, as history would come to show, Victoria had other plans. <laughs> From their very first meeting, Victoria was absolutely smitten with Albert. She wrote, quote, now this is actually after, uh, during a visit when um, Uncle Leopold and Albert and his brother Ernst come to visit which would have caused a lot of stir and celebration in her household anyway, because it's not like she ever really got to get out much. I mean, there were progresses that she would take to go and show herself to the people because they were super excited to be able to see their future monarch. And she was excited to be able to get to meet them, but eventually it became just arduous chores, uh, very grueling schedules. But so this was a chance to actually get to be with people her own age and to just get to enjoy herself especially because her mother and uh, her uncle had decided that Albert would be a great match for her from the very beginning now in the show we see Victoria kind of struggling or chafing against that but in real life she didn't <laughs> she was totally fine with Albert as we could see from her diary entries saying quote Albert who is just as tall as Ernst but stouter is extremely handsome his hair is about the same color as mine. Wow, I'm just losing the accent today. But anyway, um, his eyes are large and blue, and he has a beautiful nose and a very sweet mouth with fine teeth. Interesting observation to make there, Victoria. But the charm of his countenance is his expression, which is most delightful. C'est à la fois, full of goodness and sweetness and very clever and intelligent. And when a couple of weeks later, uh, she writes as well, uh, as they're actually getting ready to leave, and I told you before that she's not afraid to write in quotes. There's, uh, in quotes, in capital letters, there's some of that in this. It was our last happy, happy breakfast with this dear uncle and those dearest beloved cousins whom I do so love very very dearly much more dearly than any other cousins in the world Albert used always to have some fun and some clever witty answer at breakfast and everywhere he used to play and fondle Dash so funnily too I wonder if he would just like make Dash talk like hello my name is Dash I don't know but that's what makes that's what a fondle dash so funnily makes me think of. 
She and Albert continued to write letters to one another, and actually Victoria is very well known as a correspondence person. She wrote so many letters in her lifetime. And so she and Albert would continue to write letters to one another until he came back a few years later. And then five days after he returned, she proposed marriage. So she knew right off the bat that she was going to marry Albert. Uh, but that, dear listeners, is a story for next time. For your exit ticket question this week, who do you think was the most important influence on young Victoria? Why? So let me know uh, what your answer is in a comment below, depending on if you're on my website or if you're on Twitter. Give me hashtag HP, as in history pop, exit ticket. Join us next week for our continuation of the Victoria series when we look at some of the major events of her early reign and how they were presented in the show. Uh, I also offer up some predictions for events that may be coming up in the fourth season. Stay tuned, stay well, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Courtney for History Pop signing off. It's been a pleasure. Take care. This has been written and performed by Courtney Herber. Intro and outro music written and performed by Jonathan Colton and used under a Creative Commons license. This has been a Turtle and Rabbit production. <laughs>